Well, take your copy of God's Word with me and open up to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark. We'll be in chapter 6 today, verses 7 through 30. Chapter 6, verses 7 through 30. This morning's sermon is about making disciples. I have a little shelf in my study of Evangelism 101 books, How to Make Disciples books. There are a number of good books out there over the last number of years, and more recently, you may be familiar with a few of them on the shelf. They're all helpful. This is one of the original disciple-making manuals. Let's read it together. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done 
and taught. Everyone likes a good sandwich. You think of a sandwich, and uh, in the basic parts of a sandwich, you can put a whole bunch of stuff in there if you want, but you've got a bun, the outside parts, and in the middle, you've got a patty, or maybe you've, it's a BLT. Maybe there's a couple things in there, and there's no patty, but, but you understand. There's a bun, and there's a stuff on the inside of the bun, and there you have, there you have a sandwich. Carson and I, uh, in spurts, we'll do Monday evening dinners. Since the babies came home, we haven't really been doing those. We've just been holding babies. Or watching other family members hold babies and just being there to comfort them. And we're all just surviving. But we went out for a sandwich uh, last week and we went to Sonic. It's one of our stops. And we decided to get the double bacon cheeseburger. And then we've been watching a number of these little, um, you know, car review videos, and there seems to be this little review template. Uh, we're going to review this car, and then this is what we're going to say about it, and then we'll grade it. We decided to do a bacon double cheeseburger review. And our plan is to make our way around town having various bacon double cheeseburgers and grading them on the quality of their meat and cheese and bacon. And then the, the visual appeal, that would be a second category. A third category would be overall satisfaction. I mean, if it looks great, doesn't taste good. You add it all up and you've got yourself a score. They're learning that there are people on YouTube that make money off those commercials that annoy you and maybe we could make some money off of this. Don't plan on it hitting the internet, but we are recording these in case you want to know how the, the burgers are doing out there. Everyone likes, a good, everyone likes a good sandwich. We like a good sandwich. Mark likes a good sandwich. He's had a few of them already. He's served a few of them already in the course of his gospel account. The most recent sandwich was that story, remember, where Jairus comes up to Jesus and uh, says his daughter is dying. She's deathly ill. And Jesus is happy to go with Jairus. How relieved he must be until there's a crowd and a woman touches him and then Jesus stops and wants to know what that's all about and how the power left him. And you'll remember uh, that Jesus said to the woman, don't, do not fear, your faith has made you well and sends her on. And, and the woman has learned that uh, it wasn't his cloak, but Jesus that heals her. And it wasn't the touch, it was her faith uh, that Jesus responded to. Then Jairus gets the announcement, your daughter's dead, don't bug the teacher anymore. And we think, why Jesus take all that time? It was a sandwich. Jesus started the story and Mark started the story and then picked the story with Jairus back up. But Jairus was with them all along. And Jairus was getting a lesson in faith and a lesson in fear that would make him ready to take Jesus' lead when everyone else was mocking Jesus and to go into the home and to see his daughter raised from the dead. Mark does this all the time. He has several sandwiches before his gospel is over to serve yet. Remember, it's not all just a mere chronology. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. Oftentimes, the string of three things will happen in the order they do, in order that they would interpret one another. So you think of a sandwich, and the bun is flavored by the patty, and the patty is flavored by the bun. Sometimes there's a soggy, bad bun. I'd say the one at Sonic was okay. They're all good in the Bible. 
And sometimes the way his little story will stitch together, you've got a couple of these in a row. So I'll be pointing them out. I haven't called them sandwiches yet, but that's what, frankly, the most scholarly commentaries call them. They're called the Mark and Sandwich. It's his literary device. And the question is for us this morning, Jesus sends the 12 out and then he receives them back. And in between, you have the beheading of John the Baptist. So how does the bun flavor the patty and how does the patty flavor the bun? What does the beheading of John the Baptist have to do with the 12 being sent out? And what does the 12 being sent out have to do with the story of John the Baptist's head coming off? We'll look at this text this morning in three parts. What we take with us in our disciple-making work, what it will take from us, and all that we will bring back to Jesus. First things first, what we take with us, verses 7 to 13. If you're going on a hike, you might have a packing list. Depends on where you're going, I suppose. I try to go on hikes where I don't have to pack anything, even any food, so they'll be short enough. But if you go on a long hike, you're usually glad you went on a long hike. If you're going to go on a long hike, you usually have to pack something. And you may need a little stove. You may need some extra water. You may need the right boots. You may need some sunscreen. Um, You know, who knows? It depends on the hike. Well, what what do we need? What do Jesus' disciples need for this training mission? That's what it is. It's a training mission. They're sent out, and then he takes them back like little baby birds. They go out, and then they come back. This is a training mission. What do they need to take with them on their training mission? Ours is not exactly the same kind of a mission. We are not doing our mission at exactly the same time in redemptive history, but there are some things we can take away from here. In the first place, we take Jesus' authority with us. We take his authority with us. Verse 7, he called the 12. He began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now that should startle us. Uh, Don't forget what Jesus' authority is. What is this new teaching with authority? Remember that? Jesus has authority to cast out demons and he's healing. He's just given it to his disciples and sent them out with that authority. That's astounding. We have that authority. Who do we think we are? Preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and calling people to obey Jesus. Who do we think we are? There are different kinds of authority that we might ponder. Everyone has an authority. Everyone trusts something and not another. Everyone believes something on a certain authority and not on another. And depending on where you live and when you grow up and what worldview you and worldview atmosphere, world you inherit, inhabit, excuse me, uh, you might find that to be a compelling claim and not that. And, and it will depend on how you're conditioned, what you're conditioned to believe. Philosophers and the academy would speak of this as epistemology. What's the foundation for knowledge and what you know? How do you know what you know? Well, as we go about our lives, we trust different kinds of people and for, for different reasons. 
There's different kinds of authority. I have a bunch of E's so that I could remember them without looking at my notes, if that would be helpful to you. Maybe you could remember all of these authorities without looking at your notes. You have the authority of expertise. In this coronavirus season, there's been a lot of experts, haven't there? We're kind of losing our trust in expertise. And that's, an, that's, that's a trust that's been wearing for a while. We don't always so trust our experts. But, but depending on the season, we might trust experts. Experts come with a certain, certain authority. There's expertise. There's, there's education. Uh, degrees on the wall. How many little letters after your name? You might have a lot of letters after your name. And you might be trusted when you speak because of the letters after your name. And that's okay in certain venues, certainly. If you have a certain job, if you're a chiropractor or if you're a surgeon, you'll need to have some letters after your name, I imagine, some education, and you'll be trusted on account of that. And you'll have expertise too. There's other kinds of authority. There's the elite class. So when you're on Twitter and they've got a little blue star, listen. <laughs> it just means they're famous and that's actually who they are. You know, celebrities, we tend to trust celebrities instinctively. We shouldn't. Why is that? We don't know. They're, they're elite. They're famous. Everyone knows them. Everyone listens. And so we, we listen. Emotion is a kind of an authority. Folks, these days, this is a big one. And you might say, no, not me. But your feelings and the fashion of the day hold way more sway over what you think is true than you think. This is the atmosphere we breathe. Maybe less than education and expertise. And even in our Christian setting, we tend to be maybe rightly suspicious of elites because we know human nature Oh, but emotion, our feelings and our, our response to what's fashionable, we're easily drawn to what is, what is cool. That one is more subtle. Here's another one that is creeping up on us, that is sinister and subtle, and that is experience, experience might have heard of something called standpoint epistemology, that your, your authority, your authority to speak to something is established in and rooted in your experience. Maybe your experience as an individual or your experience as a part of a group. And if you don't have that experience, you cannot speak into that matter. Truth is established by your standpoint. And those from a certain group can speak to certain subjects peculiar and unique to the group. And those that are not a part of the group cannot, must not, should not speak. They don't share the same experience or standpoint. If truth is relative, then authority or knowledge is relative to experience. Standpoint epistemology, authority based on experience. Keep an ear out for it. Well, who do we think we are telling everybody else what they 
should do to repent and turn to Jesus. Who do we think we are? The Bible tells us that we're Jesus' ambassadors. Jesus has grabbed fishermen and tax collectors, and they're supposed to go out and tell other people whose experiences they don't know so well, people with expertise in things they don't have, people with elite credentials that they don't share, other people that they're to repent and turn to Jesus and follow him, that they can't be free of their guilt without forgiveness that only Jesus can give. Who do we even think we are? Unhesitatingly looking at people in the face and saying, what you're saying is sin. Who do we think we are? We're ambassadors of Jesus. Jesus has taken his authority and he has given it to his disciples and his words and his work is extended throughout the whole world through his disciples that go with it. Go into all the world. I am with you always. My authority I give to you. Anna Gross and the farmers have Jesus' authority there in Indonesia. Even if no one on the ground recognizes it. They're there as an ambassador to the king. And they're there as ambassadors of Jesus to all people with a sport authority to speak. To all people in that community, regardless of their experience or their expertise or their education. That's how Jesus has set it up. Verses 8 through 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two, not put on two tunics. So they take with them Jesus's authority. And what else do they take with them? Well, we know what they don't take. Their iPads, an extra change of clothes. You're good. Don't even bring any money. They're supposed to depend on the hospitality of those in the towns they go to, apparently. They can take, as I count it, a staff. You, you can tell they're going to have a belt because they can't put stuff in their belts. So they can take a belt, take a belt. They can wear sandals. That makes sense in one, but not two tunics. So they can, they can take those four things with them. They're taking Jesus' authority with them. They're also taking Jesus' focus with them. Jesus was single-minded, and they are to be single-minded in their mission. And Jesus is putting them in a position to have to be single-minded. When Jesus left heaven to come down here, there's a whole bunch of things he left behind. He didn't come with an iPad. It was an emergency mission. And it required resolute focus. And so our mission does as well. Our mission isn't exactly the same as Jesus's, of course. Our mission isn't exactly the same as these disciples. They would be preaching the gospel before the cross. And there's the countdown to the cross. There's an announcement to repent in view of that coming cross. Paul would stay long in places and we see that things have changed a bit before and after Pentecost, but this application of Christian mission focus is still, is still ours, which leads us to verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart 
from there. They're to make one stop in a town. This isn't vacation. They're not socializing. Um, You're not moving house to house. You're going to move to a town, find someone that can put you up for the duration of the time that you need, and just anchor down, get to work, and when you're done, move on. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Shake off the dust. This is something that Jews would do is they would leave a Gentile town. It was a form of judgment. It was a way of saying, y'all are on the outside. You're outside. You're not safe. You're under God's judgment. And we are safe. It was a dramatic way of portraying God's coming judgment on a place. Well, here, here, these disciples are supposed to do this in Jewish communities. You see what's happening as, as Jesus is coming to renew his people. They're to shake the dust off their feet. They're to indicate in plain terms God's certain judgment on those who refuse to repent and believe in, in Jesus, which is to say they, they come with Jesus's authority We take with us Jesus's focus and we take with us Jesus's urgency, his urgency. This urgency requires perseverance. They're going to go from place to place. This urgency requires requires flexibility. And we need both in the mission, don't we? We need both in our, our mission in our neighborhoods and we need both in our mission among the nations. We need perseverance and plans and concerted efforts and endurance. We also need flexibility. You think of Anna here is sharing with us this morning about how she's bummed to be in Singapore. She didn't expect to be there. You've got to have an ability to unplug and detach. In your heart, your world can't fall apart. There are reasons why you may need to hit eject and leave a place where you've been for many years. And maybe you've hardly seen anything happen, if anything at all. These guys are to move to a town, settle in, get to work, and then get on with it. Having made the gospel plain, including the judgment of Jesus to that people, we've got to balance perseverance and flexibility. There's also a sense of speed that this urgency creates. They're traveling light. The job is important. Again, the Apostle Paul would settle for years in a place as he plants. This is not to say that we, we send out a church plant or if the Lord would will for us to do that in due course. It is something that we should do. It is the New Testament's way that the church and the gospel grows in any place. If Lord willing, we do that one day, we're not going to send people out with one tunic and a belt and sandals and say, shake the dust off your feet after a few weeks. Uh, no. So the church has not ever applied this in this way in any regular pattern. It's for them and for the moment. But, but we can take the authority and the focus and the, the urgency, and there's something else we need to take here from from the passage with us. Verses 12 through 13. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. We take with us Jesus's message. We take with us the message of Jesus. We have here a message of something that people should do. 
They proclaimed that people should. What should people do? People should repent. People should turn from their worldly ways of thinking and acting and living and scheming and self-justifying and seeking to save themselves and feeling good about themselves. Oh, there are a thousand ways that we come up with to feel good about ourselves. The coronavirus has created those in every direction and in this, the riots and the protests and, and shootings and killings create all manner of ways that we can respond with this political ideology or that resolution or that demand. And we create little systems of morality that we hold up and say, this is godliness, though we don't use the word. This is the way to righteousness, though we don't use the word. Be here or be damned. Be here or we shake the dust off our feet. We're very good at this. But we have a message. Repent and turn from yourself and all of your brilliant systems of morality and turn to Jesus as your only hope and confess that you are every bit as much backwards and upside down as the next person on the news whom you revile. We're all in this together under Adam. Repent. That's something that people should do. Well, there's also something, thankfully, we proclaim that God will do. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. This whole paragraph is really focused on the manner of their their mission. But we know what the substance of their message was. John came preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God. And so we have here God bestowing on some who believe his kingdom blessings and signs of his kingdom's arrival. And for us, that's the proclamation of the good news that we may be forgiven of sins and we may enter the kingdom of Jesus and we may belong to him. And God, through our preaching and our calling people to repentance, some harden themselves, but many are healed, if you will, of their sins. And they will know perfect healing one day, as we remind ourselves, as we read about these healings. And they can be fully set in their right mind, clothed and in their right mind. All of the demons and the devil's schemes about them cast, cast out. We take with us Jesus's message. It's not a new message. It's an old message. That's important to note. Those four things that the disciples were to take with them. What was it? Staff, sandals, a belt, and a tunic. Oh, that's about the same list of what you'd read as the Israelites left Egypt in haste, directed at the promised land after having called Pharaoh and Egypt to repentance. There's multiple things going on here, but one reason I think they're dressed the way they are, one reason I think they're taking what they take is is a signal that all that God has promised in the prophets to bring about a new exodus, this time an exodus, not just from Babylon or Egypt, but from sin in this hellish world altogether, what they're wearing, these four things, is a sign that God is doing that. So they come with a message about 
what people should do. And they also come with a message about what God will do. And that message is on their lips and it's also, it's also on their belt. It's in their sandals. It's in the staff in their hands. Well, if we say all the right things and if we do all the right things, everything's gonna go all right, right? How come it isn't working? I'm saying the right things. I'm doing the right things. How come it's not working? I thought it was supposed to work. It may be helpful to think of this mission, this hike, this hike that we're on, not as a, a hike for recreation, like a recreational hike. This is a rescue hike. This is a rescue mission. These guys are dressed for a rescue mission and they are heading into, and we have to know where we're at. We are heading into, with our message, dangerous territory. Dangerous territory. In a world that doesn't want our message, it wants us to take its message. We've considered what we take with us. Now let's consider what this mission of disciple making will take from us. What it'll take from us, verses 14 through 29. First, it will take our anonymity, our anonymity. Verses 14 through 16, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. So Jesus' name is spreading. By the way, that's what happens. So our church is not here to spread our church. We're not just here to get bigger, to build a little empire here in Greenville, to be big, to be something, to be something to be proud of. We're here to spread the name of Jesus. God can do whatever he wants. Our attention is fixed on him. We proclaim him. And as we proclaim him, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. I've got neighbors down the street and their, uh, their members are heading into membership at Grace Baptist down the street here. Jamie Howell is a very fine preacher. I know a number of folks that are membered down there. I know some of you have siblings or even members down here. It's a great church. And we cheer them on and they cheer us on. And that's how it is. We're all making Jesus known. Whatever he does in any of our individual churches or places. So in verse 14, the name of Jesus is spreading. It's also raising questions. John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And uh, that's one suggestion for what's going on. Everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Uh, What is his identity? Some say he's like, he's Elijah. Come back, prophet promised from old. Others say he's like a prophet from old. Herod knows exactly who he is, or he's at least sure he knows exactly who he is. When Herod heard it, he said clearly, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Why would he be so sure? Guy has a guilty conscience. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. That's why he did it. His brother Philip's wife, because he had had married her. Some will be healed as they respond to the message of repentance. Some will harden themselves. 
Herod, before this whole story is over in this book, is going to be party to Jesus' crucifixion. How is he going to get there? This story is one stop along the way of the descent of one man and the end of his line. We know that John the Baptist will lose his head before the story is over. The original readers knew this because John the Baptist had lost his head. The disciples on the page, they actually also knew this. This is a flashback. Did you notice that? This is a sandwich. Jesus sending them out and receiving them and the, the death of John the Baptist in between. But actually this is now where there's a kind of a digression where we hear about King Herod hearing of it and now he's talking to himself and he's saying, it must be John. And, and then we get the story about John the Baptist lost his head. The disciples who go out, that Jesus sends out, knew about how John had lost his head. And of course, we know about it here as well. The question I want us to ask as we continue here is, how did that happen? How did John go about losing his head? And what we have here is a flashback. When you watch a movie and there's a scene and then there's a flashback, it it cuts away and usually there's some effect to give you an indication that that's what the uh, the cinematography is doing. And, and a flashback will give some context, some, some backstory into a character or a motive or something that happened in the past that makes sense of what's happening today. And that's what this flashback is doing. We're experiencing a flashback in the story. We know that, that following Jesus and disciple making is going to take our anonymity. It's going to raise questions. It's going to put us on, on notice It's also going to take our comfort, and we see that in verses 17 through 20. In this little story here, we've got two characters. They're quite a pair, Herod and Herodias. It's quite a story. Verse 17, for Herod, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Look at his actions and his motives. He he sent, he seized, he bound John. You'd think he hated the guy. He did it, why? For the sake of Herodias. Well, who's that? Well, his brother Philip's wife. Also his, mom, his wife, he married her. This is, this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is a suspicious, this is a, a troublesome marital relationship. I'm sure it was bad for practical reasons, but it was bad for moral reasons. Herod liked to fashion himself a king of the Jews. He wanted to be like Solomon, the Solomon's, David and Solomon, and he wanted to be Herod the Great. He wanted to be Herod as Herod in line with those other great kings of of the Jews. Oh, it would never be the case, and the Jews knew that, but he liked to fashion himself that way. So not only was it sinful for him to do this, but it was also sinful for him to claim to be king of the Jews than to go about living in this fashion. And John told him, verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. She didn't like him. She wanted this guy put down. But she couldn't do it. Why not? Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And so he kept him safe. But it wasn't just that he feared him, he respected him. When he heard him preach, he was greatly perplexed And yet he heard him gladly. I love this description. You imagine John the Baptist preaching to Herod, the local ruler, that his 
marriage was upside down and he needed to repent and turn to Jesus. His wife is seething at him for it. And Herod thinks the guy's nuts. I mean, everyone else just tells Herod what he wants to hear. But this guy tells him exactly the opposite of what he wants to hear. That's what a prophet is, by the way. Church, be very careful of feeling prophetic when you're saying the same thing the world is happy to say. Every generation will have its temptation to feel like it's doing right by the culture to say exactly what the culture is saying that we agree with and yet divert its attention from other things that are even more critical, more devastating, more wicked, more straightforward, for which we are all culpable. Sins of abortion and of pornography in our age are the great moral injustices for which God will judge our generation. And men and women to the left and to the right of us and in this room and down our street, be very careful about allocating all of your righteous energy in the direction of certain actual real sins that are among us, racism among others, police brutality among others, and miss the proportionality because you are simply blowing with the winds of the age and the spirit of the age that has found itself united in a good way against certain sins. I'm not suggesting that we should not rail against certain sins when we see them in straightforward terms. I'm suggesting to you that the spirit of the age and the prince of the power of the air does very well to put us into a trance and to neutralize our prophetic voice. See, John's prophetic voice here landed him in prison. And friends, get ready to have to say something that will land you in prison. All of this energy that is swirling about us that takes out coaches and mayors and chiefs, I fully expect to be fixed squarely on your pastor and squarely on those of you who lead businesses in our town. Be ready for it. You are watching the waves coming. John the Baptist was imprisoned for speaking truth to power concerning marriage and a man's sex life. John the Baptist was imprisoned because what he had to say was not popular with a crowd. You have Herodias here and you have Herod here. Two fairly different characters. One has a long view of things. One has a short view of things. One is plotting and one is impulsive. One is weak, one is wicked, one is driven by retribution, the other is driven by reputation. But together with the winds of their age, Satan schemes to conspire to land John the Baptist in prison and it will get worse and it portends worse things for us. John the Baptist 
was canceled. John the Baptist will be killed. And so what will this mission take from us? It'll take our anonymity. There's no hiding. It'll take our comfort. I'm going to apply that in a thousand directions. Prison floor is not terribly comfortable. And it could, well, take our lives. Could take our lives. Could take some of our lives. This preaching of the gospel these disciples are doing has raised questions. It has raised conflict in the home of Herodias and Herod. And now it's raising hell. This is what hell is out to do. Verse 21 through 29. John the Baptist canceled and killed. Look at Herodias and Herod. These two. I mean, what kind of marriage is this? She wants the man killed. And what do they lay in bed talking about? Will you just kill him? Just kill him. I kind of like him. He's interesting. He's my guy. Or maybe he said, no problem. He's being tortured. And really, he's just down there in the cell and he makes trips down there to give a listen to some of his preaching. Herod could listen to sermons all day long. He loved the guy's preaching. This was a precarious marriage at many levels. And as we see here, the the motives and the circumstances and the situations that conspire to take John's head are multivarious. There's a lot of stuff going on here. John is on mission lock. He knows exactly what he's doing. Look at what happens next. Verse 21. An opportunity came. She's a plotter. She's been watching. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. Don't let them down. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and this is, this is not an appropriate dance. There's nothing wrong with certain kinds of dances. That was not a good dance. She pleased Herod and his guests. Mom isn't there. This is a guy's party. But there's a girl there. She's young. This is wicked. She steps out after Herod says, ask anything and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. He's probably drunk or he's just overstating things in the moment, but he can't do good on it. He doesn't actually have authority in his his position as a ruler to do do good on this this promise. But she, she sneaks out and she asks her mom, mom, what should I ask for? Mom is ready. She's been watching, waiting, and she strikes. Ask for John the Baptist's head. Like a mother, like daughter, except the daughter's worse. Give me John the Baptist's head immediately on a platter. I was asked by a young man this morning who's been reading the scriptures if she was going to eat John the Baptist's head. And I said, that's hilarious. Where did you get that? Well, she wanted it on a platter. It's about as gross. I mean, here's a feast. I want you to stick that head right here in the middle of the table. I want to see his head on a platter. Like mother, like daughter. We know what he wants. He wants the young girl. And we know what she wants now. And we see that Herod is stuck. 
Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He was exceedingly sorry. He was not hoping for this day to come, but he's cornered. You see, he's stuck between a holy man and a house full of his friends. He's stuck between the word of God, the pulpit, the preaching of his friend, John the Baptist. He loves listening to this guy's sermons. He's stuck behind between this man's words and the will of his wife. And so we see here on the page, two kingdoms. There are only two kingdoms. You have Herod's kingdom and you have the kingdom of heaven. That's it. And pressure and being cornered and being put on the spot, having to lose everything, maybe having to not be anonymous, maybe having to lose something that you love, maybe having to lose your life will reveal which kingdom you you belong to, which kingdom you treasure. It's a pretty bleak passage. And after hearing this news, no doubt the disciples were incredibly discouraged. Perhaps fear was struck into them. But notice and remember that these guys are following Jesus Still, and they know exactly what happened to John the Baptist. You remember on page, chap- on page one, chapter one, that we had Jesus identified as the son of God and the one promised from the prophets and the, the Holy Spirit came down and the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus was sent out into the wilderness and he was tested, which means he's the Messiah. He comes out victorious. He's the new and better Adam. He's sinless. He can undo what Adam has done. And then we read that little line. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came preaching about the kingdom. Conflict was the trigger for Jesus' own ministry to begin. And conflict has picked up and it has deepened. And the disciples followed Jesus in the context of conflict. We saw last week, Jesus is a prophet and there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown. That was very personal at home. He's out and about now. There's no honor for him here either. There's no honor for his disciples in this world as they preach the gospel. Some will be healed in turn, but not all. And some will lose their very lives. We should tell that to our children. I remind you of that sometimes. Friends, just raise our children to prepare to lose their lives. And don't think there's any call to discipleship that doesn't include a call to give up your whole life. Lose your life to save it. It's not just a nice verse to have over your door. It means give Jesus your whole life or you're not saved. Be put in a corner and your whole life is his. You can't be anonymous as a Christian. You can't be a Christian on account of its comforts. And you can't be a Christian and plan to save your life for yourself. Here, John the Baptist's life and death is a warning to us. But here, verse 29, his disciples heard of it and they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. His disciples didn't run. His disciples ran to 
to his body and they, they buried it. And here the 12 disciples, they go out. Verse 30 now, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And so our third section, we've seen what it will take with us, what we take with us. We've seen what this mission will take from us. That's bleak. That's discouraging if it's all we've got to hear left. But we also get to see all that we will bring back to Jesus in verse 30. Just imagine what that was like. They knew people had lost their head, at least one of them, for following Jesus and doing this very kind of work. And they went out without money or an extra change of clothes. And they preached the gospel. I don't know if they got in trouble or not. Maybe they had to dust their feet off, leaving some towns. They weren't received everywhere they went. That was certainly their expectation. And they come back to Jesus full of stories. I want to hear what those stories were. Think of all that we haven't gotten in our Bibles. There's a ton we haven't gotten in our Bibles. You couldn't fill all the books in the world with all that happened in Jesus' short ministry. There's more to find out one day, isn't there? We're going to have to ask about verse 30. Hey, Jesus, can you, can you tell us what they told you? Hey, 12, can you, what, can you just tell us these stories? I'd love to hear these stories. And guess what? You've got stories too. You're going to be someone's story when they get to Jesus, if they haven't already, to tell Jesus all that they've done and taught. And they'll mention your name. And one day, there'll be names that you can mention to Jesus. All that you've done and taught and all that he, of course he knows, all that he empowered you and sent you out to do. And you'll tell Jesus all about it. And maybe some of us will get there after having lost our heads. That'll be a shame, but not really. You see, this isn't ultimately a tragedy. This is a victory. John the Baptist's death is a victory. That's how the book of Revelation will put these things. This is victory. The tragedy is Herod. What a tragedy. A man who was hearing God's word and he was perplexed by it, but he listened gladly. He kind of liked it. He had a relationship with John the Baptist. He even kind of protect him. But when he was under pressure and when it was going to cost him something, he wasn't the wicked one after John, but he was weak. And so he took John's head. Pilate will send Jesus to be crucified. All kinds of folks who are in between somewhere, they'll find out where they're at and so will we. But it's victory. This is a story of victory. It's victory in 12 disciples that go out after one has been killed. And guess what? Others have been killed. And how many are spread throughout the globe right now? Going into places. I've got friends in places where if they were found out, they could lose their heads. You might have friends in places like that as well. They have to live wisely and carefully, but with eyes wide open, there are real costs. So let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for our kids and the generation coming up behind us. Let's train a generation to lose their lives, to save it. There's a scary um, disregard for due process to return to a theme I brought up earlier in the sermon. Demands for justice without a demand for the process that justice demands. Be very careful. Friends, 
Let's be wise. Let's be shrewd. Let us never demand justice without also and equally demanding the process that justice demands. Lest, lest the evangelical church and our own church add fuel to a fire that'll burn our church down. Demand the process that justice demands. Lest there's no due process for us. But one day there may be no due process for us. And maybe this madness will turn on local churches. I pull up here very early on Sunday mornings. And this morning I thought, I don't know. I mean, if they attacked every church in town, I'm not sure the police could do much about it. And our public leaders, not not every public leader, not necessarily ours, but too many of them aren't a whole lot unlike Herod. Not wicked, but they're weak and they won't be there for us. And so we pray for our public leaders and we pray for peace so that the gospel might go out as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Well, as we look at this chapter today, we thank God for John's life and John's faithfulness, and we pray for this kind of fortitude and faithfulness. And we look at the disciples who moved out with Jesus' authority and focus and urgency and with his message and were willing to risk their anonymity and their comforts and, and even their very lives. And we pray for the same for ourselves. May God, may God grant it for the sake of his name among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for a sobering text. It strikes fear into us if we don't have your spirit and if we don't know who's speaking to us by it, your very spirit through this word. Father, we thank you for this sobering word, for this word of commission that sends us out like these disciples and this word of expectation that makes in plain terms to us this morning what precisely it is we're getting ourselves into, what precisely it is that Jesus is calling us to and sending us out to do. May we never trifle with this. May we never think this is just cute. May we never be about this because it is somehow convenient. Make us resolved to be focused to speak with your authority and without reservation and to speak a plain message concerning what everyone around us must do unless they will be met with dust on Jesus' feet and that is to repent. And with the message of God, what you will gloriously and lovingly do for all those who turn to you in faith. And that is to heal them and to forgive them and to bring them into your glorious kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.